Hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. And I am in the Wynyard, no, Wyndham Hotel in Pittsburgh with my new friend, Professor Sujata Fernandez, whom I've just discovered I met, in fact, 13 years ago. We didn't realize this really until we started chatting, but we're at the same event. And thank you so much, Sujata, for coming and saying hello. Thank you for uh, including me in this podcast. It's great. So today, I heard you talk about baseball, (laughs) (laughs) the sound of... I don't know what the sound was in that. The talk. soundscape. The, I thought that it, it would have been better with a bit of sound. Yeah, it, that we didn't hear anything <laughs> yeah. other than the talk. And various other things at this grad student conference we were at. And you're teaching grad school pretty much exclusively now yourself, is that right? Is that well, I have been, right um, for the last four years, I have been mostly teaching at the CUNY Grad Center. This semester I'm doing City undergrad of New York. at City University of New York. This semester I am teaching some undergrad, but I have, for the past four years, mostly been focusing on grad teaching. Wow. And what that, what's that been like in terms of your own research? Has it changed the way you go about it, given you less time, more time, new ideas, do you think? You know, grad teaching does both. I think undergraduate te- teaching, because I can sometimes do it with my eyes closed, there's not as much prep work, it does allow me more time for my own work, and, and mm. graduate teaching and graduate students can really take up a lot of time, but they're also really interesting and challenging. Yeah. And one of the great things about the CUNY, CUNY Graduate Center where I work is that a lot of our students are activists. They're people who are engaged yeah. in some form or another in the city, and they've got different projects going on, and so our discussions are always very rich. Very interesting. You know, you were mentioning that most of the people, if not all, almost all the people at the Grad Center are in some way affiliated with one of the borough campuses of CUNY yeah. folks. And we were talking about Queen's College, where your formal affiliation is as well yeah. as the Grad Center. And I know they've just started an yeah. MA in activism there with Douglas Rushkoff. It started what, sorry? An MA in activism. Oh, okay. They're just that. starting, oh. maybe starting this fall, actually. Okay. So, yeah, I think and there's a pretty interesting environmental activism one at UCLA. So I think this goes on anyway, yeah. as you say, but it's interesting that it's getting formalized, actually. Yeah, yeah. But CUNY has always been interested in so-called non-traditional students. That's it? right, That's one yeah. of its strengths. That's right. A lot of the students that we get are students who are, um, you know, they don't even always go on to, to teaching in graduate school, yes. but uh, many of them do. But they come with a really unorthodox interest, some of whom have been out of school for years, done other things, come with lots of different life experiences. So it's such a pleasure teaching the graduate students. Mm. And what would be, is there a typical grad student profile? There is. I mean, I tend to find that most of my grad students, they're fairly diverse. Mm. They are, um, you know, have clocked up a number of years working in either a nonprofit or an NGO, mm. Or, mm. Um, have been affiliated with some form of activism or are involved. In, and one of the things at CUNY is a lot of faculty and students are engaged in different forms of activism also to do with the university itself, um, mm. you know, uh, trying to reformulate policies in the university mm. or um, talking about, you know, the employment of General Petraeus or whatever it is that we're always, this Palestine is oh, another big issue. Oh, that's right, Petraeus has been yeah. given some fancy He was given a fancy professorship where he was getting paid something like $200,000 to teach one course. Well, it's hard work sleeping with your biographer. It it means you've got to have a lot of resources at your command, I find, anyway. Certainly, it's always in my pocket, my biologist. Thank you very much. You don't need cream, right? No, thank you. So, 
And how long have you been at CUNY then? You said you've been at the Grad Centre for four years. Yeah, well, I've actually been at the Grad Centre probably more like five years or so, but I've been there mostly for the last four years. But I joined uh, Queen's College in 2006, Mm -hmm. and um, so I've been there for the last nine years. Wow. So you know the place pretty well. So, yeah, I mean, I I really feel like I know CUNY a lot better. I feel like I know the students. you know, our, our undergraduate students are pretty much first generation coming to college. Uh, they and it's still affordable, to, isn't it? It is still affordable, yeah. even though you know, again, another thing that a lot of students are protesting are the fee hikes. Um, but they're often first generation. They often work, hold down, you know, sometimes two jobs at the same time as they're going yeah. to college. So yeah. it's a very kind of um, it's a very working class population. Let's talk about research if we could now. <laughs> Sounds like a job interview, doesn't it? Okay, thank you, Dr. Fernandez, for telling us about City University of New York. Now, my colleagues and I, we just have one or two little queries. But um, your research is world-renowned, and rightly so. But tell us a bit about what you're doing now, and then we can go back, back, back into your dark past. How's that? <laughs> sure. Well, it's interesting you ask that question because I'm. So my, my the book that I've been working on for the past three or four years, doing the research, and I'm currently writing it is a book on storytelling, which was really interesting because that came up in your talk today. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lara Pat, the, uh, Putnam asked you, you know, about stories and the importance of stories, and you said. Oh, my frustration with the New York Times and, you know, the way that they always begin with their little story. And so my book, though, is actually a political economy of storytelling and is a critique of storytelling because my argument, you know, what I'm looking at is the ways that in the sort of um, uh, the, the sort of neoliberal era and not sort of earlier, which is, you know, that I sort of compare this moment to the moment of in the West looking at, say, the women's movement and the sort of consciousness raising that they did using stories or um, in in Latin America the way that uh, liberation theology drew on stories and, um, and and the way that testimonio, which is another very important form of, of, of storytelling that helped build, was part of the international solidarity movement for many, sort of believed, um, sort of besieged guerrilla movements in Latin America, that there was sort of the way that stories were used during that moment of the 60s mm. then get sort of incorporated through things like truth commissions, um, through a whole series of kind of uh, through in the West through soap operas, uh, sorry not through soap operas, through talk shows, through um, these sort of uh, legislative um, use of stories in you know the sort of case of battered women, or that there's this way in which um, globally this this sort of more resistive potential of stories and and, and movements telling stories gets incorporated into. A, a much more sort of dominant mode of storytelling and, and my argument in the book is that that sort of mode of storytelling is something that has become very predominant in in the sort of non-governmental, non-profit mode of social movement advocacy and activism today. Um, and Man is a confessing animal. Yeah. It's a right. It's kind of like this industry, and and, and yeah. one of the things I'm interested in is the ways that a lot of these organisations, particularly ones that are high, you know strongly funded by foundations, 
um, bring out people to tell their stories yeah. and as the sort of front um, people of the movement and all that that really ends up doing is building the capital of all those organizations, building the political capital of those organizations, um, giving accolades to the people who run the organizations and actually doing nothing to change the situation of the people who tell their stories. And so I'm sort of, I, you know, I'm looking at, say, for instance, the domestic workers movement in the U.S., which brought out domestic workers across the country to pass these bills of rights and telling their stories in courtrooms and on the streets and everything. And the leaders of that movement who are all college-educated, non-domestic workers are now getting genius awards and getting $4.5 million in foundation you know, funds and, and, and writing books that are being profiled in the New York Times, while domestic workers have no change in their situation. In fact, they're worse off than they were before these movements. And that's what the Dreamers is another movement that I'm looking at, and, and the way that the Dreamers actually revolted against being having to tell their stories all the time and saying we just are not going to tell our stories anymore because all you do is you bring us out when it's time to elect Obama, when it's time to, you know, you want a Democrat in the White House, you want to pass this comprehensive immigration reform, but nothing, you know, we're not getting anything out of this. And so, unlike you know, the domestic workers are now starting to make those criticisms as well, but. There is this sort of moment. So the book looks globally. Another thing I look at is the this thing called the ways in which I call it stories and statecraft. The ways in which uh, stories were used in sort of imperialist projects like the war in Afghanistan, and the way that the um, the FBI and the U.S. government, the State Department, used Afghan women's stories as a way to humanize imperialist intervention. And that goes back a century and a half, doesn't it? Eighteen thirty-eight and the eighteen seventies as well, when the yeah. British. The Russians, whoever it is, goes into Afghanistan. They're always saving women. Right. It's I mean, always that ideology, to save women yes. from the monstrosity of right. backwardness. Absolutely. And nothing's changed right. in that sense. And, but what's yeah. interesting is in these WikiLeaks reports how they actually say we need more Afghan women telling their stories so that women in the US and in Western Europe will believe that we need this more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no, this way. The, I mean, what I went on to say today was that I reconciled myself <laughs> to the fact that I just had to live with stories. Mm -hmm. The thing I was crapping on about that Sajata mentions, but it does relate to this actually. I thought really naked saying it because I thought everyone's <laughs> going to hate me, is the way in which it takes forever in a New York Times story, which means all US journalism, to get to the point. You know, if it's about the release of a report on inequality, or if it's about the impact of climate change on a community, I have to find out that Mrs. P and her son Oscar experienced the following on the 14th of May. I don't care mm -hmm. until I know what the real story is, mm -hmm. what the general evidence is, and then I do like to know about yeah. people's stories right. because the whole thing is, of course, narratively driven in some yeah. sense, and I want to know how people experience it. Yeah. But that is the way into everything. It's so generic. Yeah. Well, let me. I'll give you an example because you know the, my argument is that there are different kinds of stories. So, for instance, I, you know, I've been involved in a struggle at CUNY recently because my son goes to the CUNY uh, Child Development Center, and that Child Development Center came out of the Black and Puerto Rican struggles when, in 1969, Black and Puerto Rican students occupied and shut down the campus, mm -hmm. and many of them had student had children, children, and they said so. They actually founded a parent-run cooperative, and they occupied the president's house, and they were given the president's house to run their childcare cooperative. Oh, I because, didn't know that. What a yeah. great story. So, and it's wonderful. I mean, it's very sort of this Afrocentric center where they said, we're going to teach kids about African history. They have on the walls, you know, Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman, I mean, all of these sort of, you know, indigenous people. And, and it's a very kind of political and 
and, and the administration has been at odds with the centre ever since it started in 1969. And so now, they got, after getting a $1.6 million grant from the council, they've said, we have to shut it down. We're using this money to renovate it. We'll let you. We're firing all the staff. We're getting rid of the whole interior of the centre, and we'll let you know when it's open again. So we've been in a struggle for the last seven, eight months to fight to get this centre put um, put back again, to you know, to make sure they don't shut it down. And so one of the people was trying to give us advice about how to fight this struggle, and he said, what you need is you need to get these students and you need to get them telling their stories of struggling as parents to study and get a degree. Don't tell the story of the occupation because that's going to antagonize the administration, right? So it's like, it's not just stories themselves, it's what kind of stories. stories People yes. want the stories of the poor, struggling students who I need to yeah. get my degree. That's yeah. what they don't want the story of the political, the black yeah. and Puerto Rican students who occupied the president's house and, yeah. and, and created a parents' cooperative. So... Part of my argument is that, you know, it's it's the way that stories are told, the kinds of stories that are told, that yeah, is part the of the problem. Because, you know, it's inevitable there will be stories. We can't get away from them. We're yeah. engaging in storytelling between yeah. ourselves in this conversation yeah. right now, aren't we? Right. It's just that there is this uh, humanistic model of correct conduct. Right. That tends to animate the way in which stories are selected. Exactly. And privileged. Yes. So on. Yes. This is a big thing. I'm going to ask about some fries. Excuse me, can I get some fries maybe? National Public Radio Mm -hmm. is a big participant in this. Yeah. Story boxes around the country. They call that something like it, where you walk in and tell your story. It's always a heartrending tale of realizing you love your mom, really. Yeah. Whatever it might be, do you know what I mean? I mean, TEDx, like all these TED conferences are all about these kind of... I mean, and this is what I'm arguing, is that there's this real resurgence of storytelling from the moth, you know, all of these NPR, the moth moth is one. I used to, before it was on radio, I used to go to that in New York City. Yeah, yeah, so there's, I mean, I'm not saying that they're all bad or anything, I'm just saying there is this real resurgence in people telling stories, people listening, consuming stories from TEDx, which is all these sort of stories of success and stories of overcoming to the dreamer movement, to the NPR number of sort of, you know, ways people tell stories. And so there's something about the sort of storytelling industry, the way that it's just really proliferated since the time of truth commissions and since the time of the talk shows. You mentioned uh, Benjamin's work earlier today yeah. in the conference we were at. And of course, the he was interested in the storyteller uh-huh. essay, I guess, is an yeah. important one. And some of that is about the attempt at a restoration of aura. Yeah. Uh, presumably, some of what goes on in this country, in particular, more than other places, perhaps where I live, is the desire for an erratic quality in the context of the incredible power of the media yeah. in daily life. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, to me, Benjamin is this point, as, as you said, you know, this sort of uh, a sort of alternative to the kind of culture industries model that someone like Adorno was talking about, that he does represent this sort of a hope for this model of thinking beyond the, the sort of the storytelling industry that we've come to be accustomed to. I'm I'm not sure how that looks because right now what I see in the movements that I'm studying is a rejection of storytelling. It's saying right now we want right. to be analytical. We want to yes. be the people you yes. come to, not to tell our stories, but to analyze our social condition Conditions. because we don't want to just be telling our stories. Thank you very much, no rush. And this is, I think, the other side of evidence-based policy. It yeah. can be this awful weapon that's used right. against social movements. Yeah. And, of course, is itself about narrating something, Mm -hmm. but nevertheless it's got something to it. 
Yeah. No, and I mean, I don't know if you've noticed in the UK where particularly there are so many narrative institutes that have started up. I didn't know and that. And there's a ton. There's one that I'm on a list for and I constantly, I mean, it's like, how can narratives help us solve this problem? How can stories help us resolve the AIDS crisis? How can stories, how can storytelling, I mean, this real sort of, I mean, it's used in the medical field, in business. I mean, there's all of these ways in which stories are being sort of pulled out. It's, it's like, um, you know, George Udyssey talks about his, um, you know, sort of this culture, the instrumentalism of culture, this utilitarian right. and, and resource. as resource and I, and I think there is something as well about storytelling and the way that it's become instrumentalized in so many different yeah, yeah, fields yeah. as resolving all of these issues. Well, I, one of the things I do in addition to picking out frequent polluter miles <laughs> is listen to gringos as you go around the world uh, and they're always either talking about money always saying, you've got to tell a better story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's like a new... And it's one of these things where yeah. I feel like I'm going, I'm in the presence of truly postmodern critics <laughs> and I'm a, a hoary, tired old fern yeah. from the jungle, yeah. from the forest, where I want to say, well, there are, there are competing stories to do with truth. That's true in different ways in which truths are told and contest. But you're not even pretending there could be any truth. You yeah. just want to have a story that makes you more money. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. And that's so powerful and it's yeah. so trivializing. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, and I think that's particularly one of the areas I've studied a lot is hip hop and of course the sort of commodification of stories within hip hop has become so blatant in the last ten years or so. Um, and, I, and I think what's interesting is that, you know, this in some ways, George Udyssey with his theory about storytelling as a resource is pointing to a logic beyond the, the profit logic, right? Yes. Which is a different kind of instrumentalization or a different kind of utility. Oh, sure. And sure. I think this is what sort of applies here too, is we're not just talking about, say, the commodification as in what's happened with stories within, say, hip hop mm. culture. We're talking about, you know, trying to humanize people so you can go in and you know, uh, invade their countries and bomb the hell out of their, you know, uh, of cities. Course, George also pays tribute to groups like Oludun and Afro Reggae uh -huh, yeah. that yeah. are using culture as a resource, yeah. but in a way that I think he would say, and he's another podcast victim, by the way, <laughs> yeah, arises figure. organically from their circumstances. So yeah. they're in the favelas trying mm. to do things differently, yeah. set up NGOs and so on, but not from the outside, more yeah. from the inside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you, you've mentioned your uh, hip-hop work. Yeah. And I think one of the things about your hip-hop work, which I hope you'll tell us more about, is that you've done it, as I understand it, both at a scholarly level mm -hmm. and at a more popular mm -hmm. level. You've sought to engage different audiences, different reading formations, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So would you tell us a bit about both what it is you've done in terms of the subject matter and yeah. your take, but also something about those different reading formations. Yeah. Well, you know, I, my first book was an academic book on Cuban arts, and hip-hop was one of the things that I looked at there along with performance arts and film. And I just, you know, after I wrote that book, partly my editor's suggestion, but partly just thinking about how to actually engage the artists themselves in thinking about this and getting them to, to be involved in the writing and the reading and so actually the book that I wrote it was this kind of memoir about my experiences with hip-hop both as an artist because I was growing up with hip-hop culture in Sydney and became very involved with the sort of immigrant aboriginal 
movement of hip-hop in the in the inner city and in the um, in the west side of Sydney which is predominantly Aboriginal and immigrant and um, so I was very involved with that and I actually had a group with a, a, an Aboriginal woman the two of us performed and so I had that sort of involvement in hip-hop culture and you know then I went to Cuba and studied it I also was involved with I had a lot of friends within the hip-hop movement in Chicago and and then in Venezuela where I wrote my second book. And so the, the memoir was kind of these four places and just describing this sort of journey through these four places. And but when I wrote the book, I wanted to try and write it with the people who I was um, involved with. So it was kind of a little bit of this kind of collaborative ethnography, which I've been interested in, how to work with people in, in researching and writing. and. Um, so, uh, so that was a really interesting experience for me. Um, I'm not sure if it was always an, a successful one because when you don't have, when you open up your text to other people, you don't have full control over it anymore, and so it doesn't always end up being exactly what you want to say. But there's a certain giving over of that control that can also be helpful. Um, Could you give us an example of? If you feel able to do sure. this, where you think it worked and where you were less happy. Sure. I mean, you know, with the, the Chicago chapter, I write about this white rapper, what Mike Treese, who, um, you know, often I, you know, I didn't interview with him and, you know, I was writing about my own interactions with him. And, and then I asked him to edit the text. And we actually, it took a long time for us to do that because there were times where I wanted to put a positive spin on stuff that he was saying. So, you know, I sort of ended the chapter by saying, you know, it's just, it's been so hard, but eventually he sort of found, you know, why hip hop is important. And he's like, I just don't feel that. I don't feel positive at the end of this. And so it was, it was interesting for me because it made me realize the way I put spins on how people think about things that aren't necessarily how they feel but rather to give a good conclusion to what I'm trying to write or to put a different message across and so that was it was a really helpful how he, I represented him in language you know I often sort of used Ebonics in representing the way he talked and he thought that made him sound uneducated and um, buffoonish and and so you know he rewrote it a, a little bit later thank you okay, so reach in if you want I've just <laughs> okay, go got, ahead. A, got a plate of vegan fries here, <laughs> um, so that was one where I think it, it, it worked and you know and I also did it a bit with my Venezuela book where I allowed people to read I went back and forth with them and I learned a lot about my own assumptions about people um, the one in one place that didn't work and I won't give names was in no. one of my chapters I um, you know, I sort of said to one of the people, feel free to edit, and, and for him... Carry on. Oh, sure. <laughs> and I'm using the container of a tea bag, a kind of tea bag profile, <laughs> to mop up my shame. We've just come from a very, very erudite and interestingly delivered paper on slime. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> now we're practicing it. Yeah, right. It was slime for children, but I've just shown... Yeah. Oh, no, I'm using the nice clean napkin. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so in your so Venezuelan book, so the book, one way a, that it didn't work, I was just right. saying in the global hip hop book was, yeah, um, yeah, one of the ways where that sort of collaborative ethnography didn't work so well was where you know I sort of a, a, another person in the book said, well, why don't you edit this? And 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 he kind of wanted to just keep making himself look great, so he'd kind of give himself these really long and glowing bios. 
and <laughs> throughout the chapter and always you know he was the first to bring workshops and he was the first to do this and 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 so while I didn't want to I'd opened him up the opposite the possibility of doing this so I sort of had to edit it in a way but I look back on it and I can see in that chapter now you know it's not something I'm entirely satisfied with so it's that sort of give and take of, of, of collaborating with people I want to get onto the subject matter of the yeah, talk yeah. in a moment, but I can't help but ask you about how two terms you've used tonight intersect in your work and your thinking more generally, ethnography and political economy. Mm. Well, to me, um, I think, you know, as somebody, my undergraduate degree was in political economy, and I've always considered myself a Marxist, and so I think, for me, really the way that I think about culture, the way that I think about ethnography, really everything I do is has to be grounded in a, in a sense of political economy of what's going on. So for instance, talking about the Afghan women's stories, I think for me the issue with the Afghan women's stories is that they present these resolutions of, well, you know, it, women just have to band together and we'll be able to solve this problem. And I think the fundamental problem with that approach is it ignores the ways in which you know, U.S. intervention from the, you know, colonial well, colonialism and then U.S. intervention from, um, you know, the time of the Cold War has fundamentally disfigured the political economy of, of Afghanistan and it's forced people into these really, you know, crazy economic and political relationships that have produced, you know, all kinds of violence against women and, and different things. And the U.S. presents it as this kind of, like they are right now with ISIS, this kind of evil that has come out of nowhere and is confronting our great and wonderful democracy and democratic values. And there is no sense of the political economy that produces these kinds of things and situations in the first place. And so that's why for me, with my storytelling project or even with my Venezuela project, I'm really, you know, interested in, in putting social movements, global hip hop, whatever it is, in the context of the kind of state formations, the histories of state formations and um, and the sort of modes of political economy that, that exist. Um, and where does ethnography fit into that? So, I mean, ultimately, ethnography is what I do. And, you know, I haven't done it so much with this latest project on storytelling, which is more of a textual reading of um, looking at different texts and the conditions of their production and reception circulation. But in general, most of my work has been about, like, for instance, I did my Venezuela book because I was just hearing so much stuff about Chavez and the opposition. And, and I said, there's got to be something going on there with people in the barrios and what they're thinking and feeling and that's where I want to go and find out and so I ended up just going and living in a barrio for about 10 months and just getting to know people and it's that kind of immersion that to me is is how I really learn about something and really learn what's going on because I don't think you can learn stuff from books I don't think you can know everything that's happening just by reading about it because especially in a context like Venezuela or even Cuba so much of what we get is filtered and, you know, in order to sort of find out what's happening. And, and, you know, I have small children now, so it's hard for me to travel to a place like Venezuela. And that's why I haven't been doing, you know, a lot more research on Venezuela because I don't want to write about it from here. I don't want to write about it from the West where I'm, you know, again, only getting filtered information. But, um, for sure. So uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Ethnography requires certain circumstances of life 
yes. partly what you're saying. That's it? right. And even, you know, I've sort of, one of the things I've been writing about is a domestic worker movement now in New York. Right. And even to be able to do that, my time is limited to the time when my kids are in daycare and school. And so I can't follow a domestic worker meeting that goes on late into the night or you know, do things like that. So I've found that I've had to sort of think about different modes of investigation that fit with my own personal life circumstances. And those will change again one day and then I'll do ethnography again. But um, When you're 50. <laughs> exactly, when my kids are <laughs> out in college. Um, so, Are there contradictory moments, though, between political economy and ethnography? You're yeah. presenting them as though they fit together quite seamlessly. But mm. Aren't there moments when you know there are structural determinations, but the things you're seeing and the stories you're hearing don't run with those determinations? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what teaches us something, right? I mean, to me, mm -hmm. you know, there is this whole narrative in Venezuela about how, um, you know, you had this kind of uh, very heavily, you know, this sort of rentier economy dependent on the... the petroleum resources and then you get this um, this kind of these neoliberal governments who want to completely privatize the economy and restructure it and um, and and then you get Chavez who comes into power in 1998 with this anti-neoliberal agenda and that's the kind of political economy that we get of Venezuela that Venezuela moves from being this you know this sort of very neoliberal kind of system to one that is the beacon of anti-neoliberal movements for the whole of Latin America and the world, right? That's the sort of general thing. But for me, going in and working with social movements, I saw that in state institutions, they were dealing with all these neoliberal logics. And so these state officials were using these cost-benefit analyses <clears throat> in order to implement Chavez government programs like the missions. And that, you know, everywhere they were sort of dealing with these neoliberal logics throughout the state institutions. And so that made me then think, well, we need to revisit this question, these kind of narratives of how the political economy is, to think about actually, you know, and this is where, say, Iwa Ong's work has been helpful to me because she talks a lot about these kind of hybrid you know, systems that we don't have a pure neoliberalism and we don't have a pure anti-neoliberalism, but in some ways we can have these kind of hybrid. And and the other thing that I think is important is uh, from her work to me is not just to see neoliberalism as an economic system, but to look at the rationalities, right? The Foucaultian um, neoliberal governmentality that Foucault talks about, which was so clear to me from doing field research in Venezuela that this is every this neoliberal governmentality is so deeply embedded within state institutions from the previous era that we can't just talk about Venezuela as an anti-neoliberal system. No, quite. I mean, it is pitiful, actually, sorry, but the way in which the Western left has picked up on a bunch of South American examples right. to valorize its fantasies mm -hmm. of what it would like to see domestically. Yeah. And really, I mean, in terms of environmental despoliation, yeah. human exploitation, indescribable hell. Yeah. At the same time, as some real yeah. restructuring of the economy in certain ways, at yeah. least the way the benefits are distributed domestically. Yeah, yeah. You know, but my God, the true believers drive me crazy. Yeah, yeah. In any event, tell us a bit about your own experiences in hip hop. Okay. As an artist <laughs> and. You were in a two-person, two-woman yeah. group with an Aboriginal woman. Yeah. Saying, what's her name? Yeah. So her name is Wayata Telfa. Wayata Telfa. And, yeah, and what I was actually, your, your band called? We actually, you know, I can't even remember 
we had when we very first came together we had this really corny name which was witches of hip-hop witches of hip-hop <laughs> god i think i'll just move a little further away here in case you cast some x on me <laughs> that was that was when we were very young and very starting out then we came up that's with a better fun. name that i don't even remember but now when we joke about it that's what we call ourselves the witches <laughs> um, but it was interesting because i was doing this um community arts uh a community theatre program just happened. I was in college, I was doing this program. And um, at that time, you know, every time I used to drive down Parramatta Road, I saw this big billboard with this woman um, with this long flowing hair and um, bare shoulders wrapped in a small little towel saying, they say I'm too pretty to be an Aboriginal. And I was like, I, I actually used to write for this newspaper and I wrote an article about it. I said, this is horrible. Why is this? This, is, this was done by the anti-racism board had put up this poster of this woman. They say, I'm too pretty to be an Aboriginal. And actually, when I was at this workshop, I actually met this woman. She was then. She had shaved all her hair off because she said that when she went back to Adelaide, which is where all her family is, they all said to her, so you think you're too pretty to be a blackfella now? You think you're too pretty to be one of us now? And it totally ruined her life, that ad, and just the way that they presented her highly sexualized and, you know, this sort of light-skinned Aboriginal woman. Um, and... Fancy, fan, fancy, connotative, vanguardist, Anglo wordplay. Yes. It's meant to be anti-racist. That's meant to be anti-racist. And so she, and so she was like, she just felt that she had no voice at what she was, and and she had said that they interviewed all of these. There was a whole lot of Aboriginal models that they interviewed for this ad, these ads, and she actually said that, and it was taken totally out of context, and put up as her speech for the board, and so and and. And she had shaved all her hair off and she just said, you know, I was so angry about the way that they represented me. And 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 then we sort of bonded over our love of hip-hop and, you know, we that was when we sort of started performing together and we went out west and we sort of hooked up with a Lebanese producer there. And Which was in the 1990s? This was in the 1990s, yeah. Right. Which is a time when, when hip-hop in Australia was really starting to develop and... Um, and, and grow and, and it's really, you know, to me it's kind of sad because a lot of the writing about hip-hop in the late 90s and 2000s totally wrote Aboriginal people out of the hip-hop movement and said that, you know, there's a whole book that's written on Aboriginal hip-hop which said, which is written on Australian hip-hop which says that, you know, Aboriginals were really not part of this and it's, for us who were, who were really part of that early movement it was so distressing to see, you know, like all of these academics in Australia writing, you know, the, the sort of and it was a lot of women involved, you know, in my book I talk about the three Palestinian women who dressed in fatigues and talked about Israel and, you know, it was very political, it was very, there was a lot of women and it was mostly sort of Lebanese, Aboriginal and, um, you know, very sort of immigrant-centric and so, you know, I was being involved in it at that time, um, it, it really changed because then what happened was uh, the music industry came in in Australia and, and they started promoting, promoting something called Aussie rap, which was Aussie rap. Aussie rap, they called it, which was, you know, trying to sell rap to a very large audience was all the five top groups about 10 years ago when I was writing this book, the top five rap groups in Australia were all male, all white <laughs> collectives. Well, as they should be. <laughs> I mean, authenticity is most important. Well, that were the Aussie, they had to, you know, have the real Aussies for the Aussie rap. And so, and, and when I went back and interviewed the people who I'd been involved with, none of them were doing hip-hop anymore. They had all either been pushed out of it or they were just disgusted with it. And 
it was, you know, it was it had turned into a sort of career track for young white males um, who were looking to sort of, you know, and many of them from very privileged backgrounds. And because even, I mean, when I was starting out, there were a few white people in hip hop, but it was mostly this sort of working class um, people again from the, from the western suburbs who really identified with it as something, uh, you know, resistive and something oppositional. And, um, and so, <clears throat> this is part of a a long but not unbroken tradition, I would say, of Australian Aboriginal people in particular identifying with African-American yes. struggles and forms right. of culture. Is that yes. fair and thing to yeah, say? Yeah, I mean, and you know, Wayata, who I was with, she grew up in Adelaide and she went to see Bob Marley when he came on his survival tour in, I think it was, it was at 1979. And that was, she said, and that was when Aboriginal people first started calling themselves black, when they heard reggae, you know. So reggae was another movement that was right. really important in that formation of, of black identity among Aboriginal people. Yeah, no fixed address, yeah. I think, was an Australian yeah. Aboriginal reggae band, if I yeah. got that right. Yeah, there were. Um, those days. Yeah. Wonderful band. Yeah, and in fact, Wayata, one of her songs, used a riff from them from No Fixed Address in one of her songs. So there was, and there's See, a lot of that. See, you hip-hoppers, you're never original. You're just ripping stuff off. Intertextuality. Oh, sorry. Pardon me for living misses. You're all Chris Stevens. <laughs> Who am I to judge? Wow. That's a sad story, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, um, on the one hand, there's an interesting appropriation yeah. from black culture mm -hmm. in the United States and other places. Yeah. And on, then on the other there is a really rather boring appropriation into this uh, white boy rap. Right, and, and, and to me, when I wrote the book, what I wanted to do was to write this history that wasn't included in any of the histories of Australian hip-hop that were written by mostly by white Australians, and that was this history of um, the way that hip-hop, first of all, became a voice at a time when politics was, you know, in the post-70s, there was like, you know, this real kind of lack of, you know, it was after the tent embassies, it was after the freedom rides, it was after all of the energetic politics of the 60s, and there's this kind of slump, and and, and these, there were young people who had political ideas, but they really had no protest movement no place in which for to them. say them. Yeah, these freedom rides, uh, listeners, were, I guess, in the 60s, and modelled a lot Taking on civil, civil rights. rights yeah activism and the tent embassy was set up, I don't know if it's still there, it was for decades in various forms, yeah. for Aboriginal people opposite the Houses of Parliament yeah. in Australia to point to dispossession, appropriation of land, destruction of culture, survival of culture yeah. and so on. And so Wayada, who I was with in the band, I mean she grew up with that, her mother was an activist and took her to all these meetings, so her whole upbringing was remembering being involved in the tent embassies and the, you know, these freedom rides and then moving into an era where, you know, the situation where there were all these sort of what so-called black bureaucrats who became... Sure. Some of whom had been involved in who, Some of whom had been involved in those activities and entered into the establishment yeah. and then, uh, you know, as conditions worsen for Aboriginal people, it was like, well, what are you complaining about? Look, you have your own, you know, agency, you have your own institute, and 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 this is where young people like Rad and others started criticising it and saying, no, you know, they don't they don't represent us. And again, the other thing that was happening at the same time as the formation of this black bureaucracy was this whole discourse of reconciliation that people like Paul Keating, the president at the time, or the prime minister at the time, were putting forward about whites and blacks need to come together and we need to all 
forget the past and reconcile. And so they, Wada, one of her raps was a reconciliation crap rap, you know. Just <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this is where I was, you know, part of this movement. And, and the other thing, I don't know if you remember, was the sort of rise of this xenophobic white um, uh, conservative right with people like Pauline Hanson, who was a fish and chip shop owner from Brisbane, who became very prominent in politics and the kind of like the Tea Party equivalent in Australia at that time and who would say things like Aboriginal people are cannibals, they eat their own children and a lot of very racist comments about both immigrants and Aboriginal people that sparked to me one of the most interesting anti-racist movements that I've seen in Australia and and what happened was that hip-hop became really important in that anti-racist movement yeah. and, it, and it, it sort of modelled some of the coalitions that happened within that movement mm -hmm. between immigrants and Aboriginal people. Could you talk a bit about that because mm. I'm assuming your parents were immigrants. They or were, I think you may yeah, actually. yeah. And they came from South Asia. They did, they did. To yeah. Australia. Yeah. So, as South Asians, they would have been subject, you would have been subject to a lot of discrimination, to being a not very large minority yeah. at that yeah. time. Yeah. There was a lot of racism in Australia. My parents came, um, you know, at, at a time in. Um, in the 1960s, they migrated to Australia, and um, they, my dad never wanted to live there. They we kept trying to kept trying to get a job in India. He came from India, and they never could get jobs there. And um, what was interesting was, at the same time that Australia has always been a really hostile and racist place, and I never saw it as my home in that way because I just always felt like an outsider there. But at the same time, growing up. We grew up in an incredibly diverse community, and so when I was growing up, um, most of the people around me were not white. They were they were not Indian either, because there were very few Indians. But I grew up around Aboriginal, Islander, Chinese, Filipino, a lot of different people from all over. This was in Sydney, and um, Randwick is the part of Sydney where I grew so, up. So um, near the racecourse. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is uh, Eastern Sydney, Eastern. much of which. I don't know about now, but in those no. days was extremely expensive and ritzy. Yeah. But much of which was not. Yes, I mean, the area that we grew up in was totally working class, mm. the school was as well, and it was very, very diverse. And so my experience growing up was just being surrounded by people of color by a very sort of diverse mm. um, kind of uh, culture. Um, you know, we we're always going to our friends' backyards where the Tongan people who were, you know, baking pigs and, you know, roasting them under the ground or whatever it was, but we just, that was what we grew up with and I always experienced Australia as both this place where we could do that. We could go to my friend's, Tongan friend's house on the weekend and roast pigs, but at the, during the school week we could never talk about doing something like that. We all talked about how we love meat pies and sang the Australian anthem and, you know, it was, that was the sort of nature of Australian racism was that you had to aspire to this kind of whiteness while, you know, in your own personal life you could have your personal cultural traditions but for me the big contradiction always was I mean you know my family was I never saw you know my, my parents were not college educated my father you know worked in computers my mother was a secretary but I never saw myself as oppressed in the same way that I saw you know Wayada and her experiences as an Aboriginal person mm. as an oppressed group and that was always a contradiction for me for instance both in the well for us being singing together and performing together was she would always say you know we're were Indian were Aboriginal and I didn't see those identities as commensurate because I didn't see Indian people in Australia. They were an immigrant group. They weren't an oppressed group in the same way. They were not dispossessed. They were not dispossessed and you know and so until the point of the anti-racist movement when we could make our connections clearer by talking about the ways in which uh, you know both of these groups were being targeted by 
um, these kind of extreme right xenophobic mm. groups. Um, that was one way, and in fact, one of the songs I sang at one of those rallies was a song I wrote about my dad and his experiences in England and Australia and, um, and sort of the exclusions that he faced, and that was one way. But I did always sort of feel this discomfort that I don't think ever really went away about identifying as an oppressed person because I felt that, you know, ultimately I felt that big gap between, say, myself and even the sort of the Palestinian you know, uh, young people that I work that we knew in, in, in the western suburbs who had been, you know, fleeing from conditions of war and, um, you know, an invasion and, and a lot of these kind of situations I saw, I didn't see the Indian immigrant as sort of fitting into that same category. Well, um, it's the distinction that Will Kimlicker and others draw between the voluntary economic migrant mm -hmm. and the dispossessed right. subject of yeah. Indigenous culture, or the subject of you know flight from oppression. Right, but it's I think it's also a class difference, right? In the sense that most of the people that I knew weren't going to go to get a PhD at the University of Chicago, right? Whereas uh, for myself, there was that degree of social mobility available where I could eventually leave the kind of neighborhood and the kind of you know whatever I had that sort of parental support or wherever it was to be able to eventually get to grad school and do different things and travel the world, which is, was not something available for most of the people I went to school with and most of the people I knew in the hip-hop movement. There was also that, you know, those sort of class differences. Why was that more available to you? I mean, in class terms, your parents weren't super educated and you mm -hmm. were residing in the same spheres mm -hmm. and going to the same schools as these other I think it was this sort of aspirational question that, you know, for my parents it was like, well, you know, we want you to go on and do well in school and go to law school or do something, you know, where you're going to. And I, I just think that with most of the people I grew up with, their, their parents never had those expectations. So it's, it's the model migrant South Asian yeah, striving exactly. model. Is that fair to yeah, say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. I think that that was, yes. that, that was definitely at play in, in my experiences yeah. growing up. Yeah. That I think ultimately even differentiated me. I mean, a lot of, you know, there, there were several white working class people I went to school with as well, who many of whom dropped out in grade 10, got pregnant, had families. I mean, and, and so again, sort of, I always felt that discomfort with, you know, identifying myself as if, even though they were very racist to me, many of them, I still ended up in a totally different class category to where they are now. And so again, you know, I always felt that sort of discomfort in, in describing myself as oppressed in that way. Or, um, and what about here in the United States, where you've lived most of your adult life? <laughs> what do you see as being not just your, but a, if one can generalize, a South Asian position in the yeah. class structure or the structure of subjugation, yeah. subjectification? Well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the reasons why I've sort of felt uncomfortable with, say, the category of Asian American studies or whatever it is, is because I, you know, a lot of the people who are active in those kinds of, whether it is scholarship or whatever it is, are from that post-1965 um, professional classes of, of Asians who came to this country. And I think there is a division between, on the one hand, the professional classes who came, 
And on the other hand, the working class Asian immigrants, um, of whom, you know, I've worked with the New York Taxi Workers Alliance in New York, which is uh, sort of a lot of South Asian um, taxi drivers who are of a, of a very different class level to the sort of, to the professional classes who came in previous years. And, um, and to me, it's only a problem insofar as, um, as that, that same social mobility ethic is something very strong within the South Asian communities that make their politics one of needing to differentiate themselves both from other people of color, from African-Americans, indigenous people and African-Americans, to say we're a sort of, we're a different kind of, I mean, you see the number of, of Asian, of, of Indian Americans who are in, you know, conservative political positions and there's a reason for that and there's a reason why that diaspora very strongly supports, uh, you know, conservative. Bobby Jindal. Bobby Jindal, yeah, but they also support you know right wing groups in India and the sort of fundamentalist R politics, RSS, RSS and yeah. BJP and all of those groups. And so for me, I've never really identified with the kind of strand of really. I thought you might be a witch of Hindutva, but apparently <laughs> not so. Said a good Catholic girl. That's right. <laughs> um, so I wonder if. What about, if, if, if you've got enough time, yeah, yeah. I'd love to do another 10 or so sure, minutes. I know I said 45, <laughs> but it's interesting. No I'd love to do some more. I also want some more hot water for my oh. tea if I can get it. I wonder if you could talk to us now for a moment, Sujata, about hip-hop today, here or anywhere else, what, it, what it's doing, what it means, how it relates to rap, how it relates to race, how it relates to the recording industry. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I think the big shift that, that happened within, I mean, people say, oh, rap's become commercialized, that's kind of the, the, the dominant narrative, and I think, you know, that ignores the fact that hip-hop has always been commercialized right from the very beginning, that's how it got around the world, that's how Public Enemy, which is one of the most militant critical groups in hip-hop got all over the globe was through commercial MTV raps and you know these the global sort of networks so I don't think that is the criticism that, that matters to me what what is interesting to me is really the post 2006 moment after the telecommunications act gets passed and you see um, you know the sort of new practices of radio stations like clear channel communications kind of taking over the airwaves and um, really exerting this um, control over what gets played and the practice of payola, where uh, labels pay radio stations to play certain kinds of music. And it's legal. Yeah, it's totally legal. I mean, this is all everything that happens in this post-2006 period. And then you see the development of what's called corporate rap, which is rap music that is really all about this kind of very sort of, um, you know, narratives that present very singular, um, you know, highly hyper-masculine, um, misogynistic, um, very, very, you know, uh, brand oriented, brand oriented, and, and this bling sort of oriented, bling, yeah. I mean, this all happens in this post two thousand six period of when when corporate rap really emerges, and um, and you know, and that's been one of the tragedies of, of where I think to the point where today. In the, in the recent Grammy Awards, one of the people who I've written about a little bit has been Iggy Azalea, who is a Australian, white Australian rapper who um, raps in a southern accent and uh, raps about life, you know, for black people. It, I mean, she doesn't even really rap about life, her music is mostly sort of party music. But 
there's nothing of her in the music. It is like this kind of blackface, and she's been criticised a lot for appropriation, for cultural appropriation of um, of black music, and she has failed to sort of, you know, stand up in any way for, you know, during the recent Black Lives Matter movement that um, she didn't have any kind of comment on that, and so she's been called out a lot on these kind of things. She was nominated for a Grammy, which made people really outraged because they said, how can this woman with this music that is just so atrocious and, and so mimicking of, of black people just getting up there and mimicking their accents. She talks in Australian accent like I do. And when she's up there on the stage, she talks in a, in a like a southern accent. And um, so, you know, this is kind of, to me, just emblematic of where hip hop has come today. And it's also really sad because one of the things when I was involved in hip hop in the 90s was that you know, people were, you know, Australian kids were mimicking American music. They were copying the N-word and whatever else, and they were rapping in American accents. And, and, and what everyone was saying was, we need to learn to rap in our own voices. We need to learn to make this our culture. And we've come full circle again, because here, after all of the, that was done to sort of, you know, turn it into a culture that would draw on local idioms and local experiences is we again have someone who is, you know, possibly the most famous you know that in, in 1974, it was, Olivia Newton-John won a Grammy for Best Country Music Song. Oh, and there she? was a protest movement by oh, white folks that. in Nashville calling her a country carpet banger. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing here is that great statement by Muddy Waters, talking about a different conjuncture and a different political economic possibility, the saying of the Rolling Stones, they stole my music, but they gave me my name. Mm. This is different because she's mimicking an already successful internationally renowned form of music. But Muddy yeah. Waters said, well, look, Mick Jagger is just trying to be me, yeah. but he also made me mm. in terms of the conditions of possibility for mm. Interesting. my persona circulating worldwide yeah. Yeah. as a father of the blues. Yeah. And the sort of fetishistic knowledge that people like Keith Richards yeah. Mick Jagger, The Beatles and others held their adoration of black music such that they would bring it to white radio stations in the United States mm -hmm. in the 60s yeah. and say, listen to this. Yeah. That's a bizarre thing, isn't it? Yeah. That kind of cultural transfer. Yeah, and you know, I think that happened with the blues as well. I mean, there was a lot of sort of white ethnics who, you know, were involved in sort of... Um, you know, performing the blue, the you and know, jazz blues to, and jazz to yeah. white audiences yeah. when black people couldn't enter those establishments. Yeah. And yeah. So I don't think that this is the first time. But I mean, the, the difference with Iggy Azalea is it's purely about it's not about moving any kind of artist. For in fact, she's had a lot of problems with black artists who have criticized her and right. said, you know, why is the first time a female rap artist is like you know um, nominated. Or is, is received, you know, whatever particular position that she is in, uh, why should it be a white rap artist and not even one who raps in her own voice or tells her own stories but someone yeah. who's just mimicking? Well, this issue, by the way, for listeners in other countries of adopting a US voice, be it white, black, or whatever those terms may mean, is an ongoing one in all these countries that are... Not just English speaking originally. Can I get some more hot water by when yeah. you got a moment for my tea? Thanks. But other countries where English is spoken a lot, yeah. which is the adoption of a U this U.S. accent because it is deemed to be 
popular. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, I mean, when we, in Australia in the 90s, everybody was trying to imitate American accents because it was right. cool. And there was one American guy, Baba, who was, who was there. And he's actually quite a well-known sort of local artist now. But when he was there in Australia, everyone was like, wow, he sounds so great. You know, it was like that is the sort of... But, but it was work. It was work to sort of try and think, well, how can you translate the unique way in your own idioms and your own slang? I saw that in Cuba as well. You know, I saw them sort of move from doing these really bad impersonations of gangster rap to incorporating Cuban instrumentation, to incorporating their own slang into the music, to finding a voice and an idiom. And, and this is, you know, you asked a question about hip-hop versus rap before. Yeah. And this is this question that rap has been the most commercially successful element of hip-hop culture, which consists of a much broader range of activities from graffiti to DJing to filmmaking to fashion to all of these things. And really out of those, rap has been the thing, interestingly, because of the accent issue and the language issue, you wouldn't necessarily think it would be, but it's been the most commercially successful element of hip-hop. And it's a, you know, billion-dollar industry. And, um, a billion dollar global industry um, and yet it's it's traveled um, but that traveling has come with all kinds of issues because often it is severed from the context of its production and it's severed from the context of struggle that produced it african-american struggle black struggle that is lies at the heart of, of, of that culture and so for instance Fans in Tokyo often paint themselves with blackface and, you know, yeah. get up on a stage and imitate hip-hop. And there is that disjuncture between they don't, because this global market is delivering this music wherever without the... Well, it's the classic thing about popular song in the era of reproducibility, isn't it? Yes, The disarticulation yeah. of the sign from its yeah. reference. Yeah. Nobody knows where Highway 66 is, Route right. 66, but they yeah. do. Yeah. Right? They don't know what Ventura Highway is, but they do. Right, right. And that is the fate of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. seems to me its success is its failure. Unless, I mean, and, and that's where I think, you know, in many of these contexts in Australia, in, in Cuba, there were people who played an important role as these so-called godfathers of hip-hop, right? They were the producers, the people who studied African-American culture, who studied the culture it came from in Brazil, in Colombia. All these places had their own godfathers, mm. who were the people who were like the organic intellectuals, the people who were really part of it. Now, Cuba was different because you had Asada Shakur, you had Nahanda, you had all of these Black Panthers who knew the music, Asada Shakur was the aunt of Tupac Shakur, and they oh, knew really? the culture, yeah, they knew the culture really well, and they could help, you know, to sort of mold the way in which people were being incorporated into it, and to help them understand where it was coming from, and I think that was something really important in, you know, in, in a lot of the movements that I saw that, that came up, but of course what happens to those is a different thing and the ways they get incorporated by the culture industry mm. and then sort of disassociated and, you know, severed from those connections. Oh, thank you so much. That's really kind of you. Yeah, I messed everything up on the table there, I'm afraid. Organic intellectuals of the international hip-hop yeah. class. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I wonder if we could conclude the Hapsujata by talking a little bit about Cuba and Venezuela and where you see them heading. Yeah. And we could do this in terms of your own research areas, if you like, or more generally. Yeah. Because we're at a moment in history when, in presidential politics in the United States, Florida remains in play, but as a contestable state between the two bourgeois parties. But 
not in such a way that you can straightforwardly say the Democrats are going to fuck themselves up if they go pro-Cuba. Hence, Obama opening things up because generations have changed, the demographics are different, and the U.S. desire to reassert its hegemony over the island is now becoming dominant. And in the case of Venezuela, we're seeing through the Saudis in their unholy alliance with the United States, not for the first time, generating conditions of existence in which fracking gets destroyed, the Russian economy gets problematized, Venezuelan socialism, whatever we call it, gets brought into question. So given my 60-second tour of those places, tell us how you see the situation for each of them as an expert. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because in, um, you know, right now, just recently in December, President Obama declared that the, you know, the conditions with the relationship between Cuba and the U.S. is going to be normalized and they're going to, they can't get rid of the embargo, but they're going to establish a, um, a um, what do you call it, embassy in Havana and that there's going to be if this If they get the money voted to build it. <laughs> yes. That's so cool. There's supposedly going to be a restoration of diplomatic ties, which... Right. Um, at, happened two days after that happened. Then the U.S. applied sanctions towards Venezuela, which many see as a kind of trade-off with the sort of hardliner um, conservative, uh, you know, Republicans who were pushing for this for a long time. It's like, well, give us Cuba, and so they're, they're sort of playing one off against the other. Which, I mean, the position of the U.S. within Latin America for many years has been very contested and very fragile because of the rise of these kind of movements that have, you know, really sort of part of their platform has been in favor of sovereignty and contesting the U.S. hegemony and the free trade agreements and the neoliberal policies. And, um, you know, there have been massive protests in places like Bolivia and Ecuador. And, um, and so the U.S. has sort of been trying to bolster itself. And, and, and I think ultimately the way this is going to play out is, um, you know, Venezuela has been a big supplier of oil to Cuba, and that has really helped it um, develop its economy and, and continue to keep some level of, of independence from the United States and from the global marketplace. Um, you know, right now Venezuela is facing a bit of an economic crisis. It's the price of oil has gone down. There's been economic mismanagement. There's internal corruption and problems. Um, and you know, there's just sort of, I mean, there have been sort of the middle class protests that have been going on. And, and now with these sanctions, um, you know, I think that, that Venezuela is, is in a more difficult position. And since the death of Chavez, the leader Hugo Chavez, who had kind of been more of a unifying force, the current um, president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, does not have the same support that Chavez had. He doesn't have the same leadership skills as Chavez had or the ability to sort of keep people unified. And so I think the implications for Cuba as well are that without that ally, without their support in the same way and to the same degree, that as the U.S. opens up to them and Venezuela sort of somewhat closes, economically at least, that, um, you know, it is going to be a little bit harder for them to continue to sustain the kind of trajectory of funding social programs, funding community gardens, all the kind of stuff that, that Cuba has done for many years that has been really important in maintaining some level of social equality in that country, the publicly funded programs, um, has been an issue. And so, um, you know, I think where, you know, one of the things that is going to be important in this scenario is the role that 
social movements play. Um, particularly in Cuba, I think there are a lot of groups like sort of ARAC, which is an Afro-Cuban, Afro-descendant group that has been organizing a lot. Um, different groups, and I'm not talking about the dissident organizations, of whom are very small in Cuba and have very little following within Cuba, but I'm talking more about the sort of, you know, the, 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 the social movement organizations who've worked together with the state and who are not outside of it, but are nevertheless kind of continuing to work and continuing to try and exert their own voice. And I think if they become, if they can sort of increase their position vis-a-vis -vis the state and, and, and through the openings that exist and through their ongoing contacts with, with people in the United States and abroad, um, I think that, you know, I, I hope that that will help us see some positive changes in, in Cuba. And, um, Venezuela, you know, I've... Uh, I, I think, again, that's probably a similar story. I think that, you know, comunas, which is the sort of um, communal units of self-organization at the local level, have in many places proven to be uh, quite interesting forms of local self-organization. And I think that it's going to also depend on this, how this balance of forces plays out as to whether the sort of, you know, the bureaucrats and, and, and some of the more corrupt forces within the... The, the party went out or whether social movements and the bases are able to sort of, you know, exert more of their, um, more of their weight. Well, Fugato Fernandez, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank it's you, it's really a great. And I hope you'll come back into the pod <laughs> when you new book on these narratives, the storytelling of social movements and the problems with that appears. Thank you very much.